It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hello, everyone. That Williams guy here for another episode. We're recording this on Sunday, September the 25th at 3.33 p.m. Eastern Time because Brian Eastridge is helping me pull a rabbit out of the hat so that we get a, an episode recorded this week. How you doing, Brian? Great. Rabbit this, pulling today. Because <laughs> if it wasn't for Brian bailing me out right here, we would not have an episode this week. Yeah. Isn't it tough when like your real life work schedule and everything gets in the way of your podcasting hobby? I keep telling people my jobs keep getting in the way of my career. So. That's right. Yeah. And uh, we're also testing. Brian has been on several times and there's always something with the Zoom and Brian's mic and maybe we've got that fixed. So we're hoping that is the case today. So Brian was trying to explain me how to fix that on my end and I'm, yeah, I know nothing about audio testing and fixing and all that stuff. So maybe we've got it going. Hopefully. Hopefully. All right. Well, Brian, uh, as you probably know from past episodes, is a career cop in the middle part of America, the the best part of America that's still America, that has the best ice cream that you can get, and which is Brahms, of course. And yeah, you know, we talk on a regular, consistent basis. He's part of a Texcapade, which is the only way I can describe the the, the texturing uh, that is just constant, constant source of entertainment and show topics. And uh, today's episode will be the ma- the basics mastered versus entertainment. So yeah. Brian, Brian, take take it away. So the text to capade, yeah, we can uh, we will not disclose or divulge all the characters <laughs> in the text capade, but uh, it gets rather in intriguing, and uh, you know, in between, you know mild insults to people's sensibilities and uh there is some good uh value that comes out of it right and wayne dobbs and i got the great fortune of of uh teaching at concealed carry inks guardian conference last weekend and we were sitting on the bench you know drinking water and just doing what old cops do and talking cop stories and all this and and my dad got involved you know and so uh and then chuck haggard and we're we're kind of just exchanging incidents and ideas and stuff. And, and I noticed this really, um, really interesting thing that occurred was that like Dobbs and I were teaching basics mastered. And these are, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm two days away from 20, a 20 year anniversary here. So I'm not going to like break my arm, patting myself on the back or anything, but I mean, I've lived in a violent culture for the last 20 years and, Dobbs, same thing, you know, 25 years in Texas as a cop plus like two and a half years overseas in Iraq. Uh, we, we've, we've seen a little bit of violence, both of us, uh, enough for 20 lifetimes. But what we started to see was, you know, the guys that are very competition-based or, or very uh, uh, like sport-based shooters, they really lend heavy towards what our, our mutual friend Dave Spalding called entertainment. 
So yes, you're training, but there is an entertainment value attached to it. Like you're really pushing the limits of, of, of your equipment and your personal performance. And the guys that have been immersed in, in the violent culture for so long tend to really focus on mastering just the basics. Uh, and there's a place in the world for both of those things. And they can, I hate to use this term, but they can coexist. They, they can really, they really uh, function well together. Uh, but it was just a topic that came up and I thought, you know, here's a, here's a live action example of here's our blocks down at this end of the bay. And we are just regimenting the basics mastered, the basics mastered. And consequently, the student feedback that we got from the people that went to uh, like moving and shooting classes or dot specific classes or, or, or things that were a little more uh, focused on one aspect of operation of a handgun were set up for a much more successful experience having gone through the basics mastered. So it was a... <laughs> Was a topic that was on my mind like why is that why do we you know why do we have such cultural divides between those those two groups of like open enrollment instructors when in reality we're both trying to achieve a similar mission right make people more dangerous so they can live more safely right so well I, I think you've actually answered your own question as was where's that divide from um you know, six months ago or however long ago it was, you and I were trying to see how quickly we could break the internet with like oh, posting, yeah. posting different things just to see what the reactions would be. And I put up one that was, you know, and I'm going to have to paraphrase because I don't remember my exact words, where people who have actually had actual exposures to violence tend to focus on, you know, the mechanics or, or, the, or, the, or the skills and the decision making. And the people who, who to all this is theoretical tend to focus on the, the metrics. And I do think that does come down into it. Um, like I said, you and Dobbs have lived 20 years plus years in the actual application world. And you tend to focus on the things that you know are vitally successful for that world. And the people who have not had that exposure tend to focus on what the timer shows them, what the points on the target show them, everything else. And I'm not knocking them for that, but it is, it's two vastly different perspectives that can actually result, you know, can coexist, but you can't sacrifice the decision-making and the, and the sure techniques for the speed techniques. Yeah, you can't get, you can't have one without the other. Right. And, you know, and I don't think you can put too much emphasis on one over the other. Right. Um, you know, I had, I, I got to meet an, another instructor. I won't throw his name out there. Uh, who we just happened to notice each other was wearing a, a, a fancy watch, right? Because that's something gun guys in that culture, right? And we are from two very, very different aspects of of application of the handgun and i walk in I'm like hey man nice this that and the other and he's hey yeah cool dude how long did you wait for the and we go through our watch nerd to and he says what was your name and i tell him and he goes man you're a really nice guy i went oh so are you like uh and he goes yeah if you know if 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 i went by all the times that you've incensed the internet with 
some inflammatory post, I'd think you're a real jerk. And I said, well, I don't really pay attention to anybody else's stuff. I mean, you know, within a limited few, but I said, no, I'm just like a normal dude, man. I just try to inspire a little conversation once in a while. Uh, but it was just funny that that was the, had we known each other's names beforehand, it might've got, it been a whole different conversation. And that dude lives in the realm of high level shooting, uh, high level, uh, performance with high level guns and things like that. Mm-hmm. And we're like at a conference and we're just trying to teach permeate information to the masses. There's no contention there. Um, and, and you know, later on in conversations, other people went, man, the, the students that came out of you, you and Dobbs class were set up a lot better fundamentally to take on the information that we were, we were putting out. Uh, so I looked at that and go, we, we work hand in hand here. And if we didn't have the, and, and I don't mean this to sound derogatory, if we didn't have the entertainment uh, where people are pushing performance, there's only so many people that are come going to come and take a basics mastered class over and over and over again. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, speaking of the basics master, mm-hmm. uh, I've run classes where it's basically been the same drill all day. Mm-hmm. You just shot different variations of it and with different layers of complexity, complexity added onto it. And at the end of the day, I asked the students we were doing around it. So how many different drills did you shoot today? And well, we shot, you know, seven or eight. Just gonna say, oh, you shot the same drill all day long. It was just presented to you in different, different formats. Uh, because it's like, I see this necessity and we're going to approach it so that you can execute these skills regardless of the circumstances. And, you know, that's when you get to where your basics mastered is, is our mutual friend DB was always talking about his training program when he was with his agency is, yeah, two to the chest, one to the head, if the head is still there under any circumstances. Yeah. You know, and you, and you instill that in. Okay. From the metrics out of the house, people want to get out and run two to the chest, one to the head as fast as they can go. Okay, that requires pre-decision-making that I'm going to draw and shoot two to the body, one to the head, and I know the head's going to be there because it's, it's a cardboard or paper target, and it's stationary. That's not a failure drill as, descri- as described by the people who invented the failure drill. There's an assessment step between the two to the chest and the one to the head if the head is still there. Absolutely, and... Many, many times I've seen uh, students, and it's, it's, it's more apparent in the, con- the conference environment than it is in the open enrollment environment, because in the open enrollment, eight to, you know, 24 hours of training, you're going to immerse in with one instructor. You're going to have some notion about, like, what that's going to involve and what your skill level is kind of needed to be to... Uh, to really take on the information. I mean, uh, Jed Linsky, for instance, one of his blocks, I mean, there's like a prerequisite that said you should be able to clean dot torture at three yards, uh, you know, with, within certain parameters, uh, or you're going to get buried. You're going to, you're going to be behind the curve. So people sign up for that and they go, 
okay, well, I know what I'm, I kind of know what I'm getting into. Uh, whereas, uh, some other, like a conference environment we talked about, it, it is come one, come all, you know, ages 21 to 80 skill levels, not required. Right. Um, or proficient, there's no real proficiency level that you're going to require of someone to come take a block at a conference. And you and I will both soundly agree that teaching at a conference is many times more challenging than, than your own show. Right. Right. So, so I, I look at both of those, those aspects of it. And I go, you know, if you have the basics mastered of, you know, marksmanship mindset, gun handling, there's a new concept, right? Um, all of the follow-on training with with metrics becomes much more digestible, right? Um, and those those skill sets that you're honing to get to those levels, if you don't have the basics mastered, you're really you're you're turning time and ammo into noise and and just inefficiency. Uh, so there's that, and then the context of things. And I talk a lot about context in open enrollment, you know, how fast we can shoot a bill drill under perfect conditions versus how fast can we assess shot to shot where we're not going to lose any of our accuracy. We're going to have acceptable accuracy. We're going to have a hundred percent accountability on everything. That's two very different worlds. So yeah, assessments. Yeah, well, let, let's discuss the bill drill for a second. And for mm-hmm. our audience, that's from the holster, six shots as fast as you can go into the zone of a target. All right. I can argue from the skill metric side of that, there are certain things that are these points of being able to do it, say, plus two seconds versus sub two second is a bright line dividing line in the competition world. And From a technical skill standpoint, that requires that you have executed a perfect draw, probably at about this in probably a second or less, and that you're breaking splits at 0.25 or less to get that two second build drill. Okay, that's all fine and well technical. If you're actually putting that into the application world, that A zone is not going to be in the same place for all six shots. Probably not, right? <laughs> it's just not going to stand there and let you put six rounds into it because it's going to be reacting to being shot or shot at. And uh, while, yes, the skills of being able to perform that to that technical level carry over to the application side of the house, that does not mean that because one can do the technical side that they're going to be able to successfully apply it. I do believe there is carryover, there's correlation, because as we've said on the show numerous times, the more skillful you are, the the less of your brain power has to go towards the actual operation of the tool. And so that frees up brain power for processing information and decision making. But I think that's one of the differences between people who have lived in the application world versus people who live purely in the technical world is they don't see some of the, they don't, they they won't accept that whole premise, I guess is a better way to put it. Right. And, you know, context, 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 Uh um, put me with a, uh, you know, a, a leg drop open 
Safari Land 012 with a trigger guard retention system, staggered magazines on a on a compression belt uh, on a flat range. Okay, that's I can get a pretty good metric of performance on you know and dive into the rabbit hole of how fast is my recoil spring working the gun. Uh, what grain of bullet am I, am I shooting? What powder charge am I shooting to make a power floor and all the, there is a, there is a vast skill and knowledge base inside of the, just that little, that little realm. I go, okay, now let's apply that to my G 45 with, you know, 147 grain gold dot bonded hollow points in, uh, in a concealment rig under how many layers of clothes or what, whatever it may be. So the context of those two things is very, very different, right? Um, you know, maybe include a couple of no shoots or reduce the target size to say a B eight and a high center chest. Well, you start adding all this context to it and that metric gets really skewed one way or the other. Right. Uh, so, so yeah, there's a lot of things that we have to put into context and, Part of uh, part of the things that I'm seeing personally in the in the training realm are if we don't have the basics mastered and we go try to train to these metrics, it's a train wreck because we don't understand the context of the application. Right. Makes sense. Um, no, I'm trying not to be too wordy, uh, but there again, you know, when we equate this to real life, to like the taking the potential taking of a human life and all the after effects of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of look at the shooting portion should be the most simple piece of that entire equation. Mm-hmm. It's all the things leading up to around at the time of, and after. Right. Uh, so in the context of that, how I train will be very differently than if I'm chasing a GM card or I'm, you know, I'm, trying to determine some metric for performance that I want to not only achieve, but break. Right. I mean, let's face it. If we didn't have like Robbie Latham and Brian Enos, Mm -hmm. even the, even the basics mastered training would be vastly different than it is now. Right. Right. And, and I can turn it around and, and put some things where metrics become important for the application side, knowing what my, absolute cold under any circumstances draw to first shot skills are you know gives me a mental window for deciding you know do i execute that murder program or not under this set of given circumstances and but the thing that also takes into account is just because i successfully execute the motor program and put the shot where i want it to go doesn't mean that one shot's going to stop the the adversary and yeah. you know those those are things but you know when when we look at situations we've all been in the parking lot and been approached by the guy and you're thinking okay is this the go signal or, or not you know and and is he legitimately just trying to walk up and bum change or is he trying to close distance because he's wanting to get close enough to me to just take a screwdriver in my ribs and rob me right you know, drive off in my car grab my iPhone and my wallet and run off, et cetera. And so you're having to wait for that go signal or evaluate whether or not there is a go signal, I guess is a better way of, of putting that. And so 
knowing what your skills are with your equipment, the way you're carrying it, yeah, you know, all those things, my own demand is I can execute X. That's valuable information to have for those mm-hmm. situations. So I'm not discounting the metric side of things. But I also say the metrics are only part of that equation. So I can say, if, if you know, if this head's turned away from me and I can see a zero, I've got two seconds to make this draw shot. That assumes that that one shot's going to stop the fight. Right. And, uh, you know, part of what inspired this, I watched a, a video that, uh, that someone had filmed with uh, Jed Linsky at uh, TACCON. Okay. And they were talking about what, you know, what, what does the average person need? And he broke it down to, it was something to the effect of if you can reasonably draw and hit a three by five card five times in under five seconds, you're probably doing okay. And I thought, you know, for someone that teaches at such a high level that he does, that's a pretty bold statement, right? I mean, that, that really summarized it well. So I really appreciated when he, he just came out and said it like, Hey, if you can execute X, Y, and Z, you're, you're probably going to go through life. All right. Um, yeah, you know, and he didn't talk about, well, if you have this dot or that dot or these sites or this, you know, this magwell or what, whatever it is, it was just real cut to cut to the chase. Um, and I, and I really appreciated hearing that coming from someone that, that teaches or at a, what I would consider a very, like a, a master's degree level of study of handgun, right. Uh, or study of implementation of handgun. That's, that's a pretty I wouldn't say elementary, but that's kind of like the the junior high answer to, you know, someone with a PhD answering it. So kudos to him on that one. I thought that was a really, really great statement. Um, So now I'm lost and you got to, you got to put the rabbit or you got to put the hamster back on the wheel, Lee. Yeah, of course I do have to say, I thought it was funny. Uh, I know which video you're talking yeah. about. I have not watched it. Uh, the, the link to it came up in the text campaign. It did. Uh, and, and I'm not taking anything away from the two individuals that were in uh, in that video because their skill levels far out exceed mine as far as like technical skill. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just thought it was humorous that of all the genuine bona fide application experts that were at that event if you want to talk about what as far as they'll say again application experts that were at that event where that video was filmed you know maybe you should have asked those guys what self-defense is but that's just a personal uh thing on it yeah well i i enjoyed it and i appreciated it for what it was um you know the interview i mean granted yeah there there was a lot of people and that's who the interviewer chose to interview and i I mean i don't have anything against that i mean obviously if tom didn't think they added value to that crowd they probably wouldn't be there because uh you know and much love towards tom gibbons uh i guess to do so well you know that goes kind of go back to the heart of what we're talking about today though right basics mastered versus and i'm not calling those two guys entertainment because they are they are selling the heck out of some classes Mm -hmm. Uh, even if i was retired from this cop thing i don't want to i don't want to do their training schedule i don't want to work that hard Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, and more power to them but but if you look at it at the same time they are purely on 
and I can't say that because I'm not taking direct classes from either one of them. Um, but from what I see from the material that is put out from the public, you know, they're more on the application, I mean, excuse me, the technical side of things. Mm-hmm. And they're pushing those metrics come, you know, you shoot these standards to this level, you get this, this right. award and everything. And to your point is we have to have that to keep people coming to training. Mm-hmm. We do. I mean, uh, I look at the, the block of information that I've, that I put out. And I mean, I have pressure tested it six ways from Sunday mm-hmm. about from different levels of shooter. Uh, you know, we talked on that previous podcast a little bit about instructor development. And there are times when I am teaching courses, uh, cause I do everything very, very interactive, uh, that I feel like I'm just, you know, I, I am throwing the diamonds at people. Uh, mm-hmm. but for every class, I have a couple of those, those people that are in the instructor world that are looking yeah. for instructor development mm-hmm. and I don't title it an instructor development course. And I'm not going to certify you to teach anything because I don't feel like that's where my lane is. And but Rob hasn't authorized you to do that. Who's that? And Rob hasn't authorized you to do that. Rob Garrett. Yeah. yeah. He hadn't, <laughs> he hadn't signed off all my certificate, but but at an instructor level, like I try to speak to those instructor right. level people when I'm doing diagnostics yeah. with new shooters versus yeah. really experienced shooters. Uh, but the core of the class is mastering the basics right. in context, which is something I don't see a lot of. But if right. I did that and I was the only guy in the whole United States that was teaching basics mastered, basics mastered come to my course. You're going to get some instructor development and we're going to show you how to, uh, to use the parlance again of Dave Spalding, get the gun between your nose and the bad guy and shoot it. Like that's, that's the goal. Um, and then if, if I was the one guy on the Island that was carrying the torch around the country, pretty soon people would go, yeah, we've seen that. What's next. And that's okay. That is perfectly okay. Um, because if it wasn't for, you know, back in the eighties, late seventies, early eighties, dudes like Bill Wilson and, you know, Bill Rogers and, uh, Chip McCormick, Latham, Enos, uh, gosh, uh, Jarrett Koenig. I mean, all these dudes, we would pretty much be standing on a flat range shooting courses of fire under no real, uh, other conditions. So yeah, they, both of those things have to exist together. Right. I think, you know, the innovation tends to come from the technical side. Yes. And then it can be taken and, you know, do it in the application world. And, you know, you brought up instructor development. And it's one of the things that I kind of not struggle with. But it's one of the, the battles that I constantly have in my mind. Uh, all right. I, I subscribe to the theory the most important thing in a gunfight is like a spotting says getting the gun between you and the bad guy and then pressing the trigger without misaligning the gun or moving the gun. All right. I don't worry about split times and the like to the point of, oh gosh, if you don't get this magic split time, you're gonna you're gonna fail. Now, obviously there's a difference between a 0.35 split time. And a 1.25 split time. 
Mm -hmm. uh, and that does have some carryover into the application world, provided that the target context allows for that. Right. All right. 1.25 split time when you had to divert the muzzle and move around and get to make the next shot. Okay. That may be, uh, I'm talking about subsequent shots on the same target with no interruption. Right. Um, uh, yeah, there is a skill level difference there. But I also think that when we're taking a student and we're trying to teach them to master those basics, if we are filling their head with so much things that are on the, I'm wanting to go from A to master or master to GM refinement levels that we're, we're making it more difficult for them to master those basics. But I also can understand that the, the opposite of that argument is that if we're not using the correct forms and everything as we're mastering those basics, it will make it harder to achieve that high level success if that's what someone is going to chase on the technical side. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I kind of, for me, like my lane, a lot of what, mm -hmm. what I teach and I don't teach open enrollment very often because right. it's, you know, I've got like four other hats that I wear. So that's, that's one that I'm, I'm, when I do it, I'm incredibly passionate about it. I just don't have the time asset to, to be able to do that. Uh, but one of the things I was sharing with a, uh, with a class of, you know, conference attendees. So I have like a wide variety of people, uh, was, you know, I've seen, just with a little simple math in the 11 years that I worked where I had a level one trauma center, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of like five, 600 gunshot wounds. And what they all had in common was I was interviewing them at the hospital. Like, mm -hmm. let's keep that in context, right? Like <laughs> kind of hard to interview someone that's not dead. I mean, that's, he, that's dead. Well, it may, yeah. you, you don't have arguments with the victim at that point, right. not to sound right. callous, but, right. uh, but I mean, everything from accidental to intended to suspect to law enforcement officer uh, and all points in between hunting accidents. I mean, you know, one of the ones that stands out in my mind was one of the only one of two shotgun mechanical injuries I ever saw. And uh, a dove popped up between this guy and his lovely bride and the sun was in her face and he got a face full of number eights at about 20 yards. Uh, I get to have a conversation with him. Uh, I never had a conversation with somebody that was, uh, that was peppered with buckshot. Not one time, not one slug injury. Did I ever get an interview with? Uh, so I went, Hmm, maybe there's something to this handgun thing that uh, a lot of people are missing out and a lot, but sharing that in the context of these are real life situations that I have, I have, you know, I've been at the crime scene, I've been at the hospital, I've seen them months afterwards. And you start to realize, hey, the things you need to pay attention to with a handgun are incredibly important. Um, and, you know, I've seen people with pass-throughs that it hit an innocent victim. It's like, that's not okay. Uh, to use the parlance of Wayne Dobbs, they all hit something. So, you know, when you immerse people into that environment of, Hey, we, I'm going to teach you a regimented set of tools to get you to where you can apply the handgun with almost monotonous regularity and predictable outcome. Uh, 
versus I'm going to push you to failure and then find out where you can improve two vastly different things. Um, and that's one doesn't exist without the other, but the things that we need to put the emphasis on for certain people is vastly different than, you know, the size of your wobble zone when you're moving. Okay. That's like master's degree level performance up here. But if you haven't gotten to the place where you can reliably place a projectile every single time you press the trigger exactly where it was intended or in an acceptable area of where it's intended, really not going to matter what your wobble zone is when you're moving. The other thing is the context of like wobble zone. I did this on my Patreon page. I showed a demo that I, I used to, to really break people's uh, fixation on sites. So intently that they drive them into the ditch right i talked through this deal the whole purpose of that is to show you that like as long as you pull the trigger without moving the gun the round's going to go there unless there's some other anomaly so if you don't understand it in the context of the flat range not moving when the target's giving you very little feedback other than the holes in it and then you go and you're taking off running down a flat range and looking at the wobble of sights one can't exist without the other. You're not going to know ex what we're talking about, you know, in the, in the technical aspect, if you don't understand it in the basics mastered, right? Yeah. Wordy. Sorry. Yeah. You know, and here's to take that little string and take push a little further. All right. Are you better off shooting than moving or shooting while you're moving? Okay. From a metric standpoint, set up the shooting problem and shoot it both ways and measure your performance on the target. Yeah. You know that, it, you know, if I'm moving from 15 to five and taking shots as I'm moving from 15 to five, or if I shoot at 15 and then move to five, you have, you can measure those times. You can also measure the performance on the targets. Yeah. Well, talking basic mastered, uh, what if you're somebody that is incapable of running from 15 to five, right? Yep. You know, that, that person probably needs, needs to be pretty proficient with their, right. the basics mastered because yep. if running away ain't an option, yep. you know, then we need to make sure we do everything exactly right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I, you know, DB was the first guy that really quantified assessment speed to me. And here's an interesting nugget that I will share. I will permeate to the masses. Um, 0. 0.3, <clears throat> 0. 0.35 to 0. 0.50 is the time frame that you can shoot and assess and stop if you need to. Or, well, I'm going to throw my buddy Ernest Langdon out there. We did this exercise with how to measure predictability of human performance and i won't tell you how he does it but essentially what we came up with the conclusion between the function of the gun recovery of recoil on any modern platform you can function that that platform at about 0.35 and keep the shots going where they should be to 0.5 so here's a guy that has a really healthy competition back and defensive background and i'm like odd how that number just crossed both 
crossed into both paths yeah. right here. Yeah. And then talking to DB when he sums it up with, you need to be able to shoot at an assessment speed yeah. and it is no faster than this. And it is never, you know, yeah. all that to say I went, Oh wow. We found yeah. the same conclusion in two different contexts. Yep. Funny how that works. Isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, and folks that there are a little give and take on some of these numbers, like for me, I know from my own experimenting at about 0 0.40 is where I can confirm my sights and make conscious decision to shot, to make the shot and make the shot and then everything else. That's if I'm making a decision for each individual shot. Now, you want to get me draw and put five on that target, I can give you much better split times than that. But for me to be making conscious decisions for each shot, it's at about 0 0.40. But for Brian, that may be at about 0.36. You know, for somebody else, it may be 0.43. Yeah. But it yeah. also depends on size and distance of the target, yep. right? Yep. But pretty reliably inside of like 20 yards, mm -hmm. right around a half second shot to shot, somewhere in that half second window, yeah. I can make the decision to address the target again yep. or not. Um, that's another interesting one. How many times have we seen at a police in service, a target get shot and cut in half when it turns away Yep. because we were behind this decision-making curve and we launched one maybe that we shouldn't have like uh, now kudos for all the guys out there that have split a target in half. It's a cool, it's a cool party yeah. trick. Um, Let's say you do it on purpose. Yeah, exactly. Um, call it, call it, call your shot and then do it. And, and while a target's turning at a, at a quarter second, yeah, which, you know, I had a, I had a, several of the young lads that are coming up over the years have had that happen. And I'm like, that's cool. But when the target turns away, it represents it's what and they're like, uh, it's not gone. I'm like, no, it's no longer a threat. Right. So yeah, you, you accomplished a neat little trick. You split the play, right. the big playing card but the representation of that in context is that yeah. is no longer okay to shoot. Right. So your decision-making brain was behind the curve of your trigger finger brain. Yep. And that's the result of it. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, yeah. And, and in a contextual application frame of reference, an incident may go from your justified to use deadly force to not justified to your justified to your not. I like to call it the wheel of justification. Because mm -hmm. as the events are transpiring is, you know, at the time you drew and initiated your initial shot sequence, you may have been justified to do that. But if between shots one and two, the suspect or the perpetrator, whatever you want to call them, mm -hmm. gives up and drops their firearm. Okay, you got to be able to stop because if it's i'm going to draw and put two to the body one to the head and between shots one and two the suspect gives up and drops the firearm okay shot two is probably going to be legally okay but that transition to go to the head and still put that one in there three quarters of a second after the guy's dropped the gun yeah. um, in the in a world of there's security cameras everywhere there you know it's not just the cops with the with the body cams 
people record my cell phones, there are security cameras everywhere. And if it's, they're slowing down your incident and it's not fair, you're seeing it in real time. You only got to see it once. Yeah. But you're being dissected in, in the judicial chambers going, well, you know, just before shot two was fired, he dropped the gun and then there was shot three was fired. So from the time shot three was fired, the person wasn't a deadly threat. Now it happened in an instant, but that's the legal world we're living in right now. I think we've we talked about Tony McBride shooting on, on the podcast before. Yeah, you know, she LAPD officer mm-hmm. was involved in an incident. She's a competition shooter. Um, there's video of her out there just absolutely burning down steel targets, mm-hmm. quarter second splits. She gets into this this uh, real life deadly force situation. Shots one and two each fired at about a half second cadence. Suspect goes down. He's armed with a knife. Suspect attempts to rise back up. She puts shots three and four into him at about a half second cadence for each one of those shots. Suspect hits the ground again. Suspect starts to rise again as she puts shots five and six into it at about mm-hmm. a half second cadence. There was a clear distinction between her application use of the shooting and her technical ability. If you've seen the both of those worlds from her. The LA Police Commission has determined that shots one through four are justified, but shots five and six are not. Mm. Hadn't hadn't heard that. I hadn't paid attention to that. Yeah. And so we're, you know, we're all sitting there thinking the shooting was good. Well, now we're getting to down into a world in which this portion of the shooting was good, but that portion of the shooting wasn't. And I have not heard what the final outcome of the case was because the PD internally ruled it a justified use of deadly force. Then it went to, they answered to a police commission and the police commission, like I said, they dissected the shooting into shots one through four. Okay. Shots five and six are not justified. Yeah. And yeah, we've probably all seen uh, permeating the interwaves, the uh, suspect with a gun that gets shot and takes about 30. There were about 30 shots fired after he fell on the pavement. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're seeing all manner of curb, sidewalk, glass, cars, everything in the vicinity yeah. is getting sh- just yeah. ballistically destroyed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and there may have been a time in our history where we went, well, okay. Yeah. Uh, now I don't, I don't find that acceptable. And right. I don't find it acceptable more in the context of what's going on around the bad guy. Yeah. You know, Wayne Dobbs made a great point, And I know I quote Dobbs and, and Haggard and DB like a complete fanboy, but uh, Dobbs in one of his classes made the point of going, all right, how many of you all right now in his safety briefing said, would you haul steel targets to a shopping center parking lot and set them up and have a range day? Yep. And everybody's like, that's ludicrous. And he goes, yeah, but that's where all these things happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how many of y'all would do that in your living room? Yep. And it's a fair point. Um, yep. And on the, the application side, something I went through about seven years ago, I was involved in a nasty use of force. Nasty. I mean, it was, it was one of those that it bordered on deadly. Well, it actually crossed the threshold of deadly force multiple times. Um, but my skill level, knowing my skill level beforehand, I was like, wow, that's the easy button. Let's, we can keep, we can keep chugging through this a while. Uh, my physical fitness level came into the investigation. Uh Like 
my skill level, all my prior training, uh, you know, the talk of, well, how much training do you have with your sidearm? Because if you were not confident in it, then you made the right decision, maybe not to employ it. If you're overconfident in it, you may have made the wrong decision not to employ it. How many times have you ever, like, has anyone on a flat range ever had that discussion? Right. Zero times, right? Um, but the, and the point of it, the suspect, he's in prison now, and I, I bear a permanent injury from that incident. But all in all, what kept the bad guy alive was the fact that I was like, man, in, in 1.2, if I can get 1.2 seconds worth of distance on this, this cat, mm-hmm. game over. And uh, it ultimately saved his life and mine. But, but there again, when we went through the use of force, the actual application of force, that was a four and a half hour interview of at this point, where was this person on your justification line of what you applied to him? And that's something that doesn't like your average, uh, you know, Joe six pack that, that, that wants to go shopping, like is never going to experience that unless that happens, unless that, that they have to employ that level of of force. Um, like you said, shots one through four are justified five and six. We have a problem with, well, it got down to, okay, you applied a baton strike to this location on this suspect's body. How many times before you decided that was ineffective and we moved and what was the suspect doing to warrant that type of, of application of force four and a half hours of my life devoted to explaining piece by piece, every second of that in conjunction with radio traffic in conjunction with where your backup is in conjunction with we have citizen cell phone videos like, okay. Yeah. Okay. We're going to review those in conjunction with this, uh, to ultimately, I mean, I was cleared, justified, appropriate. Everything was good. Thanks for not shooting him moving on with life. Uh, that's, that is the, the level of scrutiny now that the average citizen is under. And I think that's one thing that separates the people coming from the application side of the house and the people coming from the technical side of the house. They have not ever experienced that. That no. level of scrutiny, that level of um, you know, exposure to the legal system. I took a class from a very high level dot mill operator. Very high level involved mm-hmm. in taking down suspect, you know, enemy actors that you see get mentioned on the news. Hey, we finally got this guy. In a class, give the advice of whether or not it was legal to shoulder a AR pistol that has a pistol brace on it. You know, touch that pistol brace to your shoulder because then does it quote become a stock? And his, well, it didn't actually touch your shoulder, it touched your shirt was his advice yeah you start trying to play that in front of a judge and let's see how far that goes and i didn't jump up and down and go oh whoa 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 no it's because by my class was his class everything but i was just like that's advice from someone who has never been in a courtroom yeah and you know when i was when i was in it was hey we cannot use 
50 caliber ammunition against personnel, but you can shoot at their canteen. You can shoot at their shirt. If they're an enemy combatant, their shirt is equipment. And I'm going, yeah, that may be okay if we're overseas fighting a foreign army. Yeah. But trying to use that same type of logic in today's courtroom. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> that's not even going to be considered. Um, yeah. and, and consequently, you know, some of my friends that were, that were involved in the global war on terror and did just amazing work on, you know, did our biddings, uh, for, for the better part of 20 years, uh, towards the end of it, you know, we're, we're not fighting a standing army with uniforms. Right. We're fighting civilian insurgents that are armed enemy combatants, but they're there. And the rules of engagement started to really change, uh, towards, well, we're not shooting people that are carrying canteens and wearing different helmets and all this. Mm-hmm. Um, we're essentially engaging the civilian populace of this country. Yeah. So we need to ensure that we are justified every time we do that. Right. Uh, and I had, I had some friends of mine that were like, dude, I don't know how you're a cop because as soon as we started suffering that level of scrutiny and granted, it wasn't the level that we have here. Right. They're like, uh, all of a sudden, you know, go cyclic became hey, hold off a minute. Let's, yeah. let's, let's make extra sure that we, you know, um, uh, and it, it costs some people dearly. It, it costs yeah. a lot of our, our service members dearly to operate under, yeah. uh, under some of those, those constraints. And I, I can't get into the specifics of them right. because it's not something you just sit around and talk about. Right. right. Uh, but I had a very dear friend of mine that was like, you know, I was involved in an incident. Not, it didn't really think that much of it. And two days later, I am back in the U S in front of Jags and judges explaining why I was on the radio saying certain words to make certain things happen. Yeah. Um, and that's in a, that's in a, a war zone, right? Yep. So here we are continental United States and we don't play by rules of engagement. Mm-hmm. We play by statutory exemptions in the constitution, right? <laughs> in case yeah. law. Uh, so yeah. For people that have never experienced actual courtroom life, I mean, it's not what it looks like on TV at all. And there are times that you know I've been involved in cases where, to us, it was cut and dry. And then a year and a half, two years later, we're in a courtroom, and this tiny little minuscule piece over here that those that were actually involved in it didn't really mean much to us now that's the C's focal point yeah of the whole court case uh i can make a one involved in a shooting which i can show you the video of the shooting and everybody out there can watch it and go oh yeah that was justified because of x y and z etc but when it actually was shown to a jury the whole question came down as to where the deputy's flashlight was pointed yeah Nothing that happened before or after that mattered. It was where was the deputy's flashlight pointed at the time. Now, the deputy was not on trial. The other party was on trial. Mm -hmm. But it came down to his justification. You know, he was trying to claim a self-defense justification as to why he was being charged with aggravated assault on multiple deputies. 
And, you know, it all came down into where the deputy's flashlight was pointed. But I showed you that video and that, that question never came up in any of the online discussion that I saw on that incident when it happened. But I'm in the courtroom going, wow, we're playing the video back for that. Yeah. If, <laughs> if you want one of the, one of the incidents I was involved in several years ago, looked great, looked exceptional. Like everything, mm -hmm. yeah, everything's good. Yep. And then it got played in 1080 HDI on an 84 inch big screen in front of a bunch of administrators. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I subsequently got a little piece of paper in my file saying X, Y, and Z was good, but don't ever do this ever again, ever. And by signing this, you were admitting that you will never do this. And I mean, it was yeah. very specific and it was one minor detail mm -hmm. in that, that about two minute incident. Yep. And I'm going, and I don't even remember that. What, like yeah. what part of that happened? And then they go, oh, well right here, see where this, and, and I'm like, oh, hey, there's HD cameras in there. Not that I was doing anything like so egregious that it, you know, it shocked the conscience and warranted charges. It was just, hey, this little piece of this is not okay. According to our policy manual in this subsection. And I went duly noted sign my paperwork move on with life but yeah. uh but that was the level of scrutiny from my own peers and supervisors and all that to say we need to take corrective action on this one little mm -hmm. snippet from this incident right. that we have poured over for days um and, and we've now, watched the video countless times we've watched the yeah and it, the, to make that decision Mm -hmm. I don't know what the current number of cameras in use for NFL play, but you know, instant replay are. I know at one time it was 14 cameras mm -hmm. in use by the league just for the purpose of instant replay reviews. And you know, we all see that they, they show the playback. The commentators are arguing about whether or not it was a catch or not. They go to the rules official in, in the studio who's a retired official and they hash it out and everything they come back and then they say it's one thing the the umpire on the field calls it something else you know we all see that stuff play out that's the world we live in now and if we can't make decisions on whether or not something is inconsequential as a complete catch or not with 14 cameras watching it and the experts on the rules right but now we're trying to do a, maybe a cell phone video or a surveillance camera or something like that and playing like you say that little one instance probably never registered in your mind because your mind filtered out anything that was not necessary to your survival at that point mm -hmm. but then now as tom Givens calls them the great white shirts are sitting around watching you know the video and like, they're watching it back what happened in this little instant right here between 0.35 and 0.42 they go oh that's a policy violation mm-hmm or, oh, that makes this whole thing a non-justified use of force. Yeah. And, you know, for me, fortunately, it was, it was, it was a minor detail. Yeah. Uh, mine, and, and I mean, I, I've still got the copy of the paper somewhere. Yeah. And when I retire, I'll let somebody read it. It's, yeah. it's because when you look at the overall incident mm -hmm. and I'll tell you the full story at TACCON, it's kind of, <laughs> it's, it, it has some comedic uh, aspects to it, but yeah. Uh, when you look at how intensely the wording of the memorandum was written, you go, yep. 
oh, wow, they're like, and it, it ended up being where I put a hand on a person at one point during this incident. Right. And, and I'm like, that was, that happened in an instant. Like that passed on right. the floor. Oh, okay. Like, right. uh, I mean, I didn't argue with it. I was like, oh, right. oh, I completely understand. Yeah. Policy yeah. right here says this. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it ended up being, you know, a minor corrective action. Hey, yeah. don't, this isn't okay. Uh, had that been, this action wasn't justified and this action wasn't justified. Mm-hmm. And this was in, it, you know, this was out of the bounds of policy and this is out yeah. of the bounds of policy. Then yeah. I may not have had a career after that. Yeah. And, you know, that was seven, eight years ago, but, yeah. um, but for the armed citizen, mm-hmm. you don't get a do-over, you don't get a practice run. Yep. It, when the bell rings, it, the bell has been rung and everything that transpires from that moment until the next right. rest of your life is under mm-hmm. scrutiny. Yep. Uh, so, and everything prior to that because it's all going to get dug up yeah yeah every uh yeah every every single facebook post and instagram post and all of that and um you know i i try to be a little more careful about those things nowadays um but still some of them are still out there and they don't go away so so anyway we kind of well, we had two deputies that were involved in a justified use of force here a couple of years ago. And when the outside entity that was doing the use of force, the actual the criminal investigation into the nickel of it, guess what, folks? There are criminal investigations, whether or not someone gets charged. There's an investigation to determine whether or not there will be charges. You know, they come look at it. They want to see every use of force these two deputies have ever been involved in. Mm-hmm. I'm like, whoa, 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 you're investigating this incident, not every incident they've ever been involved in, because those have no bearing into the legality of this incident. That ain't how the world looks at it anymore. We're going to mm-hmm. look at everything you've been involved in, and your your entire life is in scrutiny, and if they find things in your past life that don't jive, it's going to be used against you in this incident, even though it had no bearing on it. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that Ellie guys here in the States, the scrutiny of, of past incidents, is pretty commonplace all the way back into you started the field training officer program on this date with this person. Uh We're going to go through every document that that person did that, how they trained you, corrected you, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the days are coming that if you're an armed citizen, uh, because I know some people that work in that, that realm of, uh, legal work, uh, you're an armed citizen and you post that, man, I just took the, the whiz bang class from X, Y, and Z instructor over here yeah. to get faster at my split times or my, you know, to practice shooting on the move. Uh, there's a real high probability that those things are going to get called into court. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's upon, if it hasn't happened yet, it's going yeah. to. Um, and I've been kind of cautioning some of my instructor buddies about that. Like, Hey, have a good lesson plan and be ready to defend it. Um, cops, we do that. We are, that's part of the program, man. Like, so. Yeah. I I see that you're professionally, you're a real retail salesman, but yet you're teaching this class on deadly force. Yeah. Where's your background in 
in that. And I can see that and it's not necessarily coming up on the criminal side, but certainly on the civil side. Yeah. Or, you know, I just, I went and took Brian Eastridge's skill builder class. Okay. Uh, and in an interview, I said, well, Brian said X, Y, and Z in that class. And that's what I did right here. And now Brian's got to go in and give a deposition to say, no, that's not what I said. This yep. is the lesson plan I follow. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to get, I don't think yeah. it's going to get better. Um, yeah. yeah. And, you know, cause one of the things, the difference between that happening on the government sector side and the private sector side is the government sector has deep pockets that the lawyers can come at on the private sector side. There's not going to be the payoff for the, for the lawyer, for the plaintiffs there. But even if there's no payoff, if you're an uncollectible judgment. There's still a lot of your life and a lot of stress you're going to have to go through. Or how about this one? If you're an instructor and you're carrying instructor insurance, yeah, that's the you payoff. can you can you can follow the lawsuit by who's got the insurance mm -hmm. uh, that that's going to pay. So I can see that becoming uh, yeah. yep. coming to the forefront of our 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 little open enrollment training world real fast. Yeah, um, I had a gentleman named Doug Deaton on my podcast, mm -hmm. and that was the bulk of the podcast we were i i say we were dancing around that issue yeah. but we were really exploring that issue quite a bit uh and how much over the lap there is in the armed citizen world now and the law enforcement world now how much yep. how much some of those those tactics uh in the legal realm are coming into play mm -hmm. um and i got news for you the same attorneys that do the defense and the plaintiff work in the le world uh -huh. Or the same ones that are doing it in the in the civilian world, yep. or the armed citizen world. I, yeah. Please, I sometimes when I say civilian, it, it comes yeah. from that stuff back there, and it's yeah. it's not meant to be a derogatory yeah. term to anyone out there because, yeah. you know, I mean, I live in the civilian world now. But yeah. Yeah. tell our, tell the audience of this podcast about your podcast. Oh, so I have the off duty on duty podcast for those of you. Uh, who didn't know that? Uh, yeah, it's been going for two years. We're on our two-year anniversary, I think, today. It was, it, or maybe it was the 17th, but uh, I released the first five episodes in September of 2020. And uh, yeah, so that I try to release one a week. Sometimes it's one every other week. I didn't record the last week and a half because I, you caught me on the first, I bailed you out on the first day I've been able to talk for like a week and a half. <laughs> I Haggard came over to watch me teach at the conference and I, I turned it over to Michael Burgess, my dear friend. He was AI in for me. And yeah. I was like, dude, you got to take this home. I can't talk anymore. Yeah. And I sat down and Haggard kind of looked at me and goes, dude, I came here to watch you teach. And I was like, yeah. I blew my voice up, pal. I can't yeah. talk. So, uh, yeah, I got that, uh, podcast and I do, you know, we make EDC belt company foundation belt that comes out of Yukon. Oh yeah. Nice hat. Uh, thanks for that. Um, it, we're, we're growing every month and that's, that's from listeners like yours and mine that, that reach out there and, and want a good piece of kit to carry their gun on. Uh, so uh, I got that. And then I do some under the guise of East Eastridge training and consulting LLC is my open enrollment deal. And that I have not had a whole lot of time to to uh focus my attention on lately because people have been buying belts so um and then oh i did 
recently I wanted to plug, I just released a Patreon. It's very affordable. It's $3 a month. And I decided I, I didn't really want to put some of the information that, you know, like home, uh, home gun plumbing stuff that, uh, you know, how to, how to service a 1911. Like, I didn't want to put that out for the, the masses. Right. I, I kind of want to make sure a select audience hears that kind of stuff. Uh, so I'm working on trying to, I'm going to run an article a week and it's everything from like how to make a good cup of coffee to like Swiss watches to J frames to, and all those things that, uh, you know, people that know me kind of know that's, that's some lifestyle stuff, some of that. So three bucks a month for less than a cup of, uh, of craft coffee a month you can have access to that as well through Patreon. So Brian did on his personal Facebook page, just post a really good video breakdown of the new Springfield uh, double stack 1911. Oh yeah. And that is what, uh, <laughs> that is what inspired uh, one gentleman who uh, I love him dearly. He will not do podcasts as part of his thing. He just doesn't enjoy doing them, but Mr. Greg Elifritz. Yep. He called me about 30 minutes after that was over and goes, that content needs to be on Patreon. Mm -hmm. And I said, man, I, you know, it's just what I do. And he's like, yeah, but you need to be a little more selective with the audience. And, and, uh, so that inspired it. And that video, I made it public. I did a full breakdown and I had people that, uh, like Hanny McMood called me and he goes, Cause dude, I, I never really thought about trigger clearance on the back of the bow and why this was like that. And I'm like, Hanny's a, he's an old head 1911 guy. And he's calling me going, uh, tell me about that. And, and grip safety timing, like who does that? Right. Uh, so yeah, I did that breakdown of that gun. And, uh, I, th- I think that gun will be as it progresses will be, if you want my take on it. Yeah. it will be more viable in the coming uh coming months and years uh than it than it is in its current form but if you are a 1911 guy that 4.25 inch gun is kind of a bargain for what it is uh if you know how to make them sing and that's you know they're they're no different than any other 1911 they're ammo sensitive they're they're picky and generally you have to do a little tune-up work, you know? So that video was shared into the, that weems guy show Facebook group. So if you're going to that group, you can find that video. And uh, it was good stuff. I sat there and watched it and heckled you by text message a couple of times in the middle of it. Yes, you uh, did. And uh, strangely. So when I first got into those, you kind of had to pry the grip frame off and now uh, they make it where like the bushings punch out. uh, And I didn't know that at the time. Uh, didn't do any damage to it, but I was like, man, this is not well thought. And then when I got it apart and I realized that was the case, I was like, oh man, I, sh- I wish I could go back and edit that. Yeah. yeah. It's funny. Cause like I sent you a text message, not intending for you to like read it right then. <laughs> and then like on the air and like, cause it was in the text campaign. I responded to something from earlier in the day and I responded to it and you read it off and like somebody else texted me like, ask him something about whichever. And I'm like, so you want me now to intentionally mess with his actual live video? Yeah. With friends <laughs> like these, I mean, it's, <laughs> but, yeah. but that one, uh, it paid dividends and yeah. 
I tell people a lot that, hey, I have gunsmithed 1911s for the better part of 20 years. I don't make a living doing it. I don't make a habit of doing it, uh, but I've barreled my own guns. I've made my, I've built my own guns. Uh, and it was something that once the polymer frame generation came back, yeah. sunset of Brady bill, I just kind of parked that in the, oh, I might need to use that someday file. Yeah. Uh, and now what I'm seeing is generations of people that, that were not affected by the Brady bill that are jumping into a platform that most of us kind of left yeah. when the polymer guns got good. Yeah. And I'm trying to add a little bit of that, uh, not curmudgeonry, but some perspective right. about, Hey, look, this ain't your, this ain't your favorite Tupper gun. Uh, it is a, it is a well tuned machine. And if you don't know how to work on it, um, I mean, we, shoot, we got what, like 30 years worth of kids that have been driving that have probably never changed their own oil. Yeah. So now you're stepping back into a platform that, uh, it can be very challenging to keep those things maintained, or you could get a Wednesday gun and it runs great the rest of its life. You know I mean? So, and I'm, I'm inspired to see that craftsmanship come yeah. back. I think it will inspire more people to do that, but, uh, after 2004, how many, you know, how many custom 1911 builders do you hear out there that are yeah. versus 1994? There were hundreds and hundreds of them. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. we could take 200 of the same generation Glock, mm -hmm. disassemble them, put all the parts into individual parts buckets, and then we could randomly go through and select parts and put the guns back together and they would function and work just fine. I don't think you can do that with five 1911s. If you went back to the GI era when they were be being built yeah. for service, you yeah. could, uh, they would not be great. Yeah. Uh, but something else we look at, uh, those GI 1911s, uh, originally from onset had a 5,000 round service life. How many, how many of us shoot that in a year? Yeah. Right. So, yeah context uh the newer guns are built way way far superior than the old collector guns uh but that gun was only ever intended to have a 5,000 round service life so we're going up from there uh whereas your beretta 92 and your your m17 were certified at 20,000 round service life uh, that's the only two guns out there that ever have officially done that in the handgun realm so you're, it's kind of like, man, I got this brand new Toyota Tacoma out there that'll run for 150, 200,000 miles with minimal maintenance. And now I'm going to go buy an old panel panel truck and I'm going to expect to be that as my daily driver. Mm, you're, you're in for a surprise. Uh, our mutual friend, Rick Remington subscribed to my Patreon and I did an article about 1911s where I have my three favorite ones and they're all three broken. And then I have my G45 off to the side and I'm like, look, these guns at their peak keep up with this one. Yeah. So, yep. it, and Rick said, man, I'm a night, I'm a hardcore 1911 guy and everything you said is spot on. Yep. I'm like, you know, I, I lived with that. I lived that world. And now here it's coming back around again. It's just got more BBs in it. Yep. You know? <laughs> I, 
I have an armor certification on the old Smith semi-automatics. Yeah. Like the 4006s mm-hmm. and, and the stuff that, that predates it. But most, mainly, the, the, it was a three-day course on the third generation, but they had to talk about first and second generation as part of that. And then I went to the Glock Armor School, which is a day long. Okay, I went to a 1911 Armor School. I had a 1911 that had problems, and I came back from the Armor School, and I got rid of my 1911. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I'll, I'll go grab a third generation Smith right now tear it apart on this table and I'm sitting at I ain't touching my 1911s I, I just got rid of them all and it's just because I don't want to there's so much nuance in that and everything that that's just just like okay I understand my limitations and I've never been the cool guy in my life so I'm not gonna worry about being the cool guy now I'll shoot this old piece of plastic that that works yeah and, yeah and a little little deeper perspective you know uh eric gelhouse we we talked about like i went to cylinder and slide oh yeah you're drinking water good good on you uh eric had a, a pistol smith's guild gunsmith on call for all the years he ran single stack 1911s eric i'm not talking out of school uh but he said man i, I decided well, i want to learn how to work on and maintain these so he went to a Larry Vickers build course, which is uh-huh. Vickers and cylinder and slide. There's only so many ways to build those guns the correct way. Right. Yeah. Um, and he said, I got home and I bought an M and P Smith, <laughs> uh, after carrying them for 19 years and having yeah. two. And, yeah. and, uh, when I went to cylinder and slide and learned all that nuance and all those techniques, uh, I landed on Glocks again and Larry Vickers, my, you know, who, he's at various times in my life, we've been really close and he's, he talked about, you know, uh, the unit and, and I don't want to, like, I never went there. I don't know, uh, know all that much about it, but he said, you know, I, I was going to write a, a paper about how this, this unit was founded on the 1911 and we were never going to carry another sidearm because this is just, this is it. And, uh, walks into a meeting and they go, how's everybody feel about the Glock 19? And he goes, yeah, it'll work. That's the most well-funded military unit on the planet. And they ditched that platform because it was too labor intensive to keep it running. Yep. You think, it, it, <laughs> you know, context here, perspective, yeah. like, um, and I know, I know a lot of those guys that still run 1911s that love them and they're dedicated to the platform. Some of their yeah. retirees that that's what they know. And that's what they go yep. with. Great. Yep. Um, but, you know, I, I can't remember Spalding said, I can find parts for a Glock 17 in every gas station in America, you know, <laughs> Cairo, Egypt, or Clint Smith, Cairo, Egypt to Cairo, Illinois. There's a Glock yeah. 17 somewhere. Somewhere. Uh, somewhere. You know, for years, I kept a Glock 27 for when I traveled because the most common law enforcement gun out there at the time was the Glock 22. And I knew mm-hmm. if I had the 27 when I was traveling that I could take magazines from 23s and 22s and make them work if I had to. Now, thankfully, nine millimeters done it. So I'll, yeah, I'll run so, around with a Glock 19 all over the world. Of course, if I'm going to some questionable places as far as legality, I go down to a 48 um, for the 10 round magazines. But, uh, you know, I know I can get the stuff I need to make those work any anywhere I go. Um, get with a five sixteenths punch yeah <laughs> yeah uh anything else you want to want to mention about your your exploits 
uh, let's see. I have, uh, I have a podcast coming up on what is FTA with Steve Moses and my dad, Gary Eastridge. We're going to talk about, you know, if you're an instructor, what, what is the FTA and what do they do yeah. for you? Uh, I've yeah. got, a, I got that one in queue. Um, I'm going to start probably after the first of next year, booking some open enrollment courses. Again, they'll probably be Oklahoma, Texas, maybe Kansas a little bit. Uh, I, but that's, that's going to start firing up. Uh, the belt company's got some other stuff in the works right now that I got to devote to, but, uh, and it looks like I'm probably going to retire from law enforcement after the first of the year. So I'm, uh, I'm making all those preparations and I've, uh, I don't get scared. Concerned is more that like a strong concern is more that the, the lingo, but, but, uh, and then I'll be at TACCON in March. So if you're there, come say hi, I'll, I usually carry some belts to, to sell in the back of the truck. Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of it in a nutshell, man. Well, I am two days away from being four weeks post-op um surgery on my dominant hand yeah and i am looking forward to being able to go back to using it right now i am carrying i'm right-handed right now i am carrying left-handed uh which i think i can handle most things to about half of my previous skill right now um going left-handed provided i remember that's where the gun is and that's where i start from uh, i hope i have enough time to make that uh make that recollection and and go to the to the, what is now the correct side for the firearm i did uh want to want to thank uh tim guy who would not let me back out of a class this past week that uh, i scheduled before the surgery was scheduled and i was like twice i emailed tim I was like hey man just had this surgery thing come up i don't know no no you're still coming so i went and took the class left-handed and uh, so for all of you who's on the internet who say that I have not done enough work with a pistol mounted optic comment. I took an instructor pistol mounted optics class mirror image. So maybe I'm getting to the point where I'm deemed internet worthy to comment on, on pistol mounted optics. You know, I've just got five of the things. I don't know what makes you think I'm anti-dot, but okay. Um, I've got two <laughs> yeah. right here that I'm yeah. waiting for guns to come in to put them on. So oh, I had an acro arrive at the office yesterday. And I haven't been able to pick it up yet because um, I'm not going into the office on a day off to go get the optic. It'll be there when I get back. I might have made an exception for that. <laughs> one, but. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm very much looking for I'm probably four weeks or so away from being back, being able to go right handed uh, right now. Uh, I can press a trigger strong hand if I need to. But the problem is, is that it puts the grip and the hand puts so much pressure on the incision point that it is excruciatingly painful. It's not to the point where I couldn't save my life, but it's it's uh, to the point where it's just not fun. Now, it doesn't bother me using it as a support hand for recoil, but uh, ran into some issues that uh, doing that that I had not anticipated. And so I'm probably going to do some really dedicated support hand only work in the next couple of weeks and try to iron out some things there. Um, so maybe it'll make me better on the other side of it when I get better doing things both ways. But uh, hopefully I will be able to get back to scheduling classes and stuff soon. I had to cancel one class because of the surgery and uh, just have not started booking things 
prior to, I've got something in January. Um, that's the earliest I've got things booked. So hopefully that's going to come back out and I can actually teach a couple more classes for the end of the year. Well, we'll inquiring minds like uh, John Hearn want to know by March at the TACCON shoot off, like what percentage to a hundred percent are you going to be recovered? Oh, I would hope I will be back by then. Uh, I would hope so. Now the range master instructor reunion is at my place in about three weekends from now or four weekends from now. And I, I, I won't be back in time to compete for that. Um, I am going to be teaching, but I will be, John's actually going to shoot my demos uh, for me in the, in the class. I'll do the teaching points and John's going to do the live fire demo of the stuff. Uh, I may do some of it left-handed just to really show that it works. But um, so there's that coming. But uh, man, I'm, it's just driving me nuts. Absolutely driving me nuts right now. I want to, I want to be back doing things the correct way versus this. I got to remember things. I don't like having to think about using the tool. And right now I'm having to think about using the tool. And so that's, that's the drive there. All right. And just to wrap a bow on this folks, we're not saying that technical doesn't matter. That's not what was said at any point in time in this podcast. If that's what you heard, that's on you because that's not what was said by either one of us. And uh, we're not besmirching any instructor out there at all. Uh, as far as that, we are trying to put things into some contextual uh, framing. But my goodness, if people aren't having fun, they're not going to come to a class. And it is perfectly okay to go to a class to have fun. Have fun. I, I shot competition for several years. And I kept shooting matches beyond the kind of point where I was like getting an entertainment value from the matches because I had a group of people that I shot with and that I wanted to be able to go see them when I shot the matches. And here last year, when I started experimenting with the pistol mounted optic, I said, well, you know what? I need to go shoot some matches. So I'll be get some non-square range things. Well, my old crew wasn't there. And I went to two matches and before they were over, I was bored and not having a good time and just wanted to go back home because I wasn't having fun. If I had been having fun because I was able to browbeat my buddy or something like that, you know, and they have the, we used to have the peanut gallery where we'd hold up, you know, scores after somebody did something, just, just make it fun and entertaining. Well, without that aspect, I don't find the matches that fun. And so if you derive pleasure from going from classes and chasing technical goals, there's nothing wrong with that at all. Just understand that there's a contextual base to the application side of it that you need to be adding into that mix. And for us guys that are on the application side of the house, when it was left completely up to us, we got new hall. Yeah. You know, we have to have that innovation from the technical side pushing us uh, to drive. So as Brian says, it can coexist and it probably should coexist. Brian, do you have any final thoughts? Yeah. One that uh, I didn't, I don't know that I coined this phrase, but all roads lead to gunsight. Yep. USPSA, IPSC, and all the defensing, defensive shooting we're doing. Mm-hmm. All roads lead back to gunsight yep. at some point, no matter what your training level is, it, you know, the big bear leather slap matches, it all starts there. 
And uh, I would encourage anybody to explore that because yeah. this last year and a half has been eye-opening to me. Yep. So. Yep. And it's, it's, it's amazing to quote John Hearn, how much Cooper just in tuned that he got right. Mm-hmm. That we could do all this testing. We can do all this now that we have video evidence on all this stuff and all the technical ways of measuring skill and everything that we have kind of go back and look and Cooper was right. <laughs> yeah. Huh. He may not have been first. I don't know, but he uh, certainly wrote it down, yeah. <laughs> wrote it well. Yeah. Well, he's the one that wrote it down and published it. That's why he gets the credit for it. Yeah. Sure. Uh, a couple of, I got a couple of upcoming episodes that are going to be cool. Cause you know, we've been trying to, with a lot of the episodes explore, you know, what was going on around the same time as what was happening at Gunsight was going on in other parts of the world. Uh, got some people from the uh, Police Training Institute at the University of Illinois that are going to do episodes, particularly uh, Sheriff Jerry Parsley is going to do one, and I'm looking forward to that. And uh, got some other things, John Bowman uh, may be doing one, and uh, really we're looking forward to getting some more of the historical episodes pushed out. And, um, you know, Brian, thank you for bailing me out today and getting an episode uh, recorded so we've got something to play tomorrow. My pleasure, man. Anytime. Thank you. And you're welcome to come on Hanny's podcast anytime <laughs> you want. Can I bring Hearn with me? Please do. Okay, cool. Well, Hearn's not allowed to play until after nine o'clock at night. So well, we have to take that into consideration. Uh, and for the audience, we know that your most important asset is your time. And thank you for choosing to spend it with us. <laughs>